0: Hello, and welcome to this Soulless Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit soullesschurch.com. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, beginning here in verse 1. Solomon writes, To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. What profit has the worker from that in which he labors? I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which is has already been, and what is to be has already been, and God requires an account of what is past. Moreover, I saw under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there, and in the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. This is the word of God for the people of God to which we say, thanks be to God. One more time, this is the word of God for the people of God to which we say, thanks be to God. And you may be seated. Let's just pray together one, one last time here. Father, thank you, um, Lord, for this moment we have uh, with your, your word open um, Man, I wonder if we only knew the great opportunity before us. The opportunity for heaven and earth to meet through the sound of your voice. And so that's what we're after here. We're after your kingdom coming. We're after your will being done here in this place, in this time. Just as it is in heaven. So, God, as people of the earth, as people of this world, who are doing our lives um, day in and day out, mindful of this realm even, would you give us a special ability to hear from heaven, to hear from you? Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak to us. May we look over the sun today to see you as the God who is seated at the right. Jesus, you're seated there at the right hand of your Father, and you're a God who is sovereign and ruling over all things. So uh, God, I ask that you would speak to us. That's why we're here. So would you, would you do that? We pray your, your spirit would speak. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So now how many of you had a hard time reading, by the way, that poem um, without thinking of the classic song by the birds? Anybody actually come? There is a season. (laughs) It's beautiful. Um, (laughs) Popularized, of course, by the birds. Um, Seems like Solomon wrote a number one U.S. hit here. Um, Let's back up for a second to make sure that we get this popular poem in its proper context. And we just read the context there. Uh, Verse 1 and verse 17 all saying the same thing, that there is an appointed time for every purpose under heaven. Uh, I want to begin this morning, let's get our big idea here with a sermon title. So uh, the title of my message this morning, this is where we're going. It's this, it's The Certainty of God's Sovereignty. That's what we want to talk about today, the certainty of God's sovereignty. Uh, Now, even that word certainty, it stands out in this study that we've been doing so far through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Up to this point, you might find Solomon to be a man who's only certain of one thing, and that is you can't be certain of anything. That seems to be the extent of Solomon's certainty up until this chapter. Remember, the title of our series has been Visions of Vanity. That's what Solomon has been talking about, using this word. Did you guys know this? Up until this point in two chapters, Solomon has used the word vanity 12 times. That's kind of his message, uh, that everything that appears to have substance when really latched onto, it's left with this sense of emptiness. There's an uncertainty to life. That's kind of what he's been Um, sort of walking us through. And remember, Solomon's not doing that as a non-believer. Solomon is writing from a unique perspective, sort of testing a worldview. And that worldview is secular humanism, the idea that maybe this is all there is. Solomon goes, okay, let's try that on for a second. Let's just look at life under the sun. Let's take God. Let's put him over there. And, And Solomon goes, let's see. Let's see. What's the point of work? He'll ask that question what's the point of your amusement and your knowledge? In the last chapter, it was brilliant. He said, you know, what's the point in your wisdom if you and the fool are both gonna end up at the same destination? The the fool and the wise man they're both gonna die. So he's kind of like wrestling through some really hard, difficult, depressing, like, Solomon's like not the friend you want, you know what I mean, on the bright sunny day. You kind of want him to stay home while you and your friends go to the beach because you know that Solomon is going to bum you out, right? But he's doing us a favor, is he not? He's forcing us, as we've said, to remove the rose-colored glasses to take a brutally honest look at the realities of life in a fallen world. This is how things are. And we could turn a blind eye to them and just sort of be these surface-level optimists, or we can take a long, hard look at what's difficult and press through that, finding Jesus as an even greater solution. Amen? And that's what he's kind of been doing for us, is walking us through uh, in that way. And, and so he's, he hasn't been shy. He hasn't been reserved to give us a vision of vanity. But then you get to chapter 3, and the word vanity is not used one time in these 17 verses that we read. You could say that in this chapter, Solomon moves from visions of vanity to a scene of certainty, okay? Kind of changes the mode, all right? The series is still visions of vanity, but here in this chapter, Solomon has this certainty of things. He's got this renewed confidence of things, and notice what he's focusing on. His certainty is found in looking over the sun. He starts talking about things like God. In what God is like, and what God is up to. And he's writing a completely different story here. Not one of vanity, but one of certainty. If you wanted a definition of the word certainty, um, this is what it is: it's a having the firm conviction that something is reliably true. Solomon in this chapter, he seems to exhibit this firm conviction of some things about God that are reliably true. And it's a nice Breath of fresh air. It's like, Solomon, I just need some theology. Help me out, bro, okay? You've had me be doing this sort of secular experiment. Can I just know what's true? And, and you see that in his writing. Verse 14, he says, I know that whatever God does. Verse 12, I know. He says in, in verse 17, God shall. You see the certainty there? That's kind of the, the nature in which he's writing. And we could sort of summarize what Solomon is certain about into a few things. The first thing that Solomon is certain about is, th- is the fact that God works that God works. Um, I would say this is up there with some of the most important things about God that we should be certain about, that God is not idle, that God is not inactive, that God is not dead, that God is not the divine, what is it, the watchmaker that sort of sets the thing in motion and then goes on vacation, but Solomon is depicting a confidence, a certainty in a God who is active and at work. And this contrasts in a lot of ways what Solomon has been talking about, which is man's work, right? That's kind of been his theme. What man can do, what man can accomplish. But now Solomon goes to a greater certainty. He goes, What about what God can do? The fact that God is at work. I would ask you this morning, do you have this morning, do you have that certainty? Are you certain this morning that despite what you're going through, God is at work? You ever struggle to see that? Now Solomon is lifting our eyes to be certain of that, but not just that God works, but there's a certain way in which God works that Solomon is leading us to focus on. It's this fact that God works sovereignly, sovereignly. God doesn't just show up from time to time to, you know, offer a little work and a little help, like kind of like a coach on the sidelines of our life, Right? And when we miss a shot, he comes in. Here I am. I'm just here to help. You need me? I'll be over here on the sidelines, okay? Fix your form, all right? Like, that's not how he depicts God. It's a God that's sort of working at a distance. He depicts the certainty in a God who's working in a sovereign way. Now, the word sovereignty, uh, before we get ourselves all tangled up in this word, it's a, a richly scriptural and biblical word. There's a lot of confusion that can come along with it. Here's the big idea. This is what Solomon shows us here. Sovereignty is the idea of, ha- of God having supreme authority and control over all things. This basically means that at the end of the day, God is in charge. That's how I grew up hearing my dad always say it. It was, always, it was kind of like the, the helpful line to put everything at ease. Like, oh, oh yeah, God's in charge, right? Okay, God is in control. Now, if right now you're, you're trying to wrestle with this enigma of the centuries that Solomon even talks about, which is like, well, okay, but am I in control of anything? You know, that, that, that's, the Bible is not going to pander to our, you know, desire to try to make sense of all of who God is, but it is going to say, listen, God is in control. Now, I would first, for those of you who kind of struggle with that concept, I would just ask you this question. I mean, what else would you prefer? Look at your life. Would you rather God be in control or not. I don't know about you, I am so out of control, and my life seems to be so up and down and all around that I am in desperate need of someone greater than me holding things together. Amen? Amen. Anybody else with me on that? I don't know about you, I prefer a God who's in control, not out of control. Like, oh gosh, oh no, oh no. Like, I prefer a God who's sovereign. Sovereign. So, this is simply a biblical truth that Solomon is proclaiming to us. And and there's a unique facet of God's sovereignty that Solomon is honing in on in this chapter, and it's how God's sovereignty, the the sovereign work of God, in relation to time. Think about this for a second. A hard thing to wrap your mind around. Um, Again, it's that impossible task of the centuries, great minds trying to comprehend how how is it that a God who's outside of space and time could create man in his image with a free will and a a self-determinant ability yet be sovereign over time? Well, I'm not here to come up with answers to all of our questions today. I'm just going to do what you want to do, which is what I want to do. Let's just read the Bible, okay? Let's let the Bible speak for itself. Amen? So let's look at this. Let's look at what we'll call the sovereign work of God that Solomon speaks about here in relation to time. Now remember, time has been a big theme of Solomon's language because from the perspective of the secular humanist, time is all we have. doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are, How gifted you are, how ungifted you are, how wise you are, how foolish you are. We all have this same currency and it's running out time. And so this has kind of been a focus for Solomon. So I want you to to look at this. The first thing that Solomon shows us is kind of an entry-level point to God's sovereignty. It's that God is in sovereign control over, isn't this good news, all of time. How much of it? Some of it? Nope. All of it. Here's where Solomon says that. In the first verse, he is observing life under the sun. That's what he's doing. Uh, This list here of the different times and seasons in life, it's not a prescriptive list of things like, are you supposed to hate right now or love? That's not what he's trying to help us do. He's not trying to prescribe our, our lives. This is a descriptive list of Solomon's when he looks at life. And here's his observation. All right, remember, he's lived some life now. Solomon has gone through more than just ups. He's been through some downs, all right? And here, at the end, near the end of his life, as an older man writing even to younger, um, younger men, we see that in the end of the book, here's what Solomon says. In verse one, he says, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. This is what Solomon observes about life. He says, in life, it, it, you know, kind of think of it this way, it's not this flat road in a straight line point a to point b we love point a to point b don't we where i am to where i want to be someone goes here's the problem you don't get to control what he calls seasons i know we love summer but there's a thing that called fall that shows up at the door whether we're ready for it or not i know we love non-hurricane season but those things came kind of close this year and for some people, if you think about this reality, seasons, listen, seasons have no respect over our desires. You know, <laughs> you know I, I just want summer year round. It's like, well, you can't, you can't. Or I want winter year round. That's kind of me. I would prefer that, a little chillier. Um, but no matter what I want, I'm still going to look silly wearing a winter coat in the summer, okay? It's not the time. Solomon's, Solomon's observing life. Here's what he's saying. Life has a rhythm to it. A rhythm of seasons. It's not a flat road in a straight line. How many of us know this about life? Life is filled not with straight lines, but ups and downs. Lefts and rights. I just got back, again, as I said, from Maine. The roads in Maine are different than Florida. I was flying in, and one of the things I love to notice is just how flat and how much of a a grid Florida is. You know that view? It's just like, boom. In Maine, it's a different, for a Floridian, too, riding in the back of a car can be difficult up there. It's up and down. It's all around. Me and Judah rode in the back of the car, and there's a couple points along the way where I was like, hey, can we roll the windows down, you know? I'd look at Judah. Judah, you all right? He goes, yeah, Dad. Are you? I go, yeah, bud. Doing great back here. Whew. At one point, Bernie texted me, just breathe in and breathe out. Um, that's how Solomon looks at life, times and, and seasons, this sort of ebb and flow, uh, and the way he describes it is so poetically. He goes, there's, there's a time to be born. Next thing you know, it's a season of death. I mean, he just starts with probably one of the more difficult things that life can hit you with. Have you ever experienced the, 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 the contrast of life and then into the season of death? It's disorienting. It can be tough. Um, my wife saw her mother go home to be with Jesus within the same year that we saw our son be born. I, I, so, I got married three months after my mom went home to be with Jesus. It's this sort of like, what? The seasons just show up whether we're ready. It's this sort of experience of life. So he, he goes on to say, look, a time to plan, a time to pluck what is planned. It's so poetic. A time to sow, a time to reap, a time to kill, a time to heal. Some people think that could refer to like livestock and and animals. And one second you're nursing one of your your animals back to health, the next second you're slaughtering it. I mean, he's just talking about the reality of life in this world. Um, A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. I don't know about you, I'd love for life to just be laughter. But there's some things in life that you can't laugh your way through, right? It just shows up at your door, a time to mourn, a time to dance. I'd love for life to just be a big dance party. That would be fun. But there's times in life where the only natural response is to mourn deeply, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. Husbands and wives, you ever been there? Na- Get away from me. I'm not hugging you right now, Okay but we, were, we just went on a date last night, a time to refrain <laughs> from embracing. A time to gain, a time to lose. One second, it was just pouring in the blessings. We're just, as Chance the Rapper says, the praises were going up and the blessings were coming down, okay? And then the next second, no matter how hard I try to grab on to what God has given me, It's like a bar of soap in the shower. It's slippery. I just can't. It's like all of a sudden I've gone. Have you been there? A time to gain and maybe you've lost, maybe recently you've lost something that you never thought you'd lose. Maybe it's a handful of things. A time to tear and a time to sew. How about this one? A time to keep silent and a time to speak. Anybody want to work on that one? I do. You ever been in a time where it's like, oh, oh, this is the don't talk time? My bad. Oh, this is the speak up time. I need to say something, right? Times and seasons. I, d- I love what it says even earlier. I love this one. In verse six, it says a time to keep and a time to throw away. That's a really interesting one, how seasons kind of determine what you keep and what you throw away. Have you ever experienced that? you ever cleaned out your garage? Honey, we keep in it. We're throwing it away, all right? Usually she wants to keep it, I want to throw it away, okay? Or I want to keep it, she wants to throw it away. And it's amazing how our moods from time to time, one thing in one moment it's sentimental and it's useful to us, in the next moment it's an iPhone 5. And we have to pay someone else to take it from us, you know? Verse 8, a time to love and a time to hate. Talks about the seasons of relationships where... You go from loving someone so much to hating someone so much. It was Ruth Bell Graham who said about uh, marriage, she said, the thing about marriage is you will never love someone in marriage more than your spouse. You will also never hate someone more than your spouse. (laughs) Intense climax of love and, and these struggles of hatred, weird. A time of war and a time of peace. I mean, was Solomon not speaking ahead of his time? I mean, he lived in certainly the days of war. But look back now, thousands of years, these words have have stood the test of time. Life is not a flat road in a straight line. It is made up of seasons that come and go with the wind. It ebbs and flows up and down. Now, in light of this reality that Solomon is describing, it, it leads us, listen, to appreciate the birds covering this song. And making it so beautiful. But Solomon is not describing something that's beautiful. Solomon is describing something that is burdensome. He's not describing something that's, you could say this way, that's terrific. (laughs) He's describing something that is, listen, tyrannical. The tyranny of time. The oppression of time. It's like being a boat out in the middle of the ocean in a storm. And all you can do is go wherever the wind takes you. That is the way that life is, Solomon says. To everything, there is a season. Now, remember, he's writing under the pretense. Let's pretend like there's no God for a second. So he asks this question, if that's all there is. If all your and my life is, is a time to be born and a time to die. He asks this question for the third time, verse 9. What profit then has the worker from all in which he labors. In other words, then what's it all for? I mean, come on. What are you ultimately working and laboring for in life if it's just this victim of the oppressive force of seasons and time? Now that's the downside that Solomon describes and usually allowing us to figure it out for ourselves. Here, Solomon He's going to answer some questions. He's going to here offer another way. He tells us in verse 10, I've seen the God-given task with which the sons of man are to be occupied. Now that task, that God-given task, he talks about God now, is to explore meaning in life. That's what he's been saying. That's a God-given task. Isn't that interesting? Um, You are not, if you are running from God right now and you're trying to grab onto substance apart from him, God has given you that. And he, would, he, he, he is, is perfectly in control of you coming up empty-handed. It's part of his plan. Romans 8 tells us that this world, because of sin, is actually subjected to that vanity in hope that you might reach for something more. So he says this is a God-given task, but it's not just that God has put vanity around us. Did you see verse 11? He has made everything beautiful in its time. Notice this, and also he has put eternity in their hearts. What a phenomenal truth going through season to season, time to time, time of gain, time of loss, time of laughter, time of weeping. He says, around us there's vanity because within us there's eternity. One translation says that God has planted eternity in every heart. Do you see what this is getting at? What Solomon is saying is though we are stuck in these sort of time-forced rhythms, there is this God-given cry within every human heart for more. This eternal, almost footprint, this eternal longing. Some have called it the God-shaped hole in all of our hearts. Because as God's creation, we have been made in the image of God. And we are different than all the other beings that sort of just live and die. Animals as well have times to be born and time to die. But there's something unique about man that God made in his image because man in God's image was made with this sort of eternal capacity. This eternal longing that looks at the boundaries of time and goes, I wonder if there's more. And he says, you don't have to wonder. You can know with certainty That there is something more. There is eternity. Uh, We know the way C.S. Lewis best said it. He said, if I find in my heart desires which nothing in this world can satisfy. Let's say eternal desires. The only logical conclusion is that I was made for another world. Maybe... Maybe the reason why nothing in this world can satisfy me is because this isn't the world that God created me for. Maybe there's more. Maybe there's eternity. God has put eternity in every heart. So we go through these seasons, and if you live long enough, you go through not just the ups, but the downs, and you go, could there be more? I hope there's more. I hope there's eternity, and we all know that deep down. We all know that there's more to this life than what you're living. There's more to your life even after your death. And Solomon says, yes, there is something more. There is something eternal. Maybe the better way to say it is there's someone eternal. You see the way he's describing it there? He talks at the end of verse 11 about a God who is at work from beginning to end. Whoa. Now that's cool. So now we have not just us being victims to the ebb and flow of life, but we have a God who is outside of that space and time from beginning to end at work. Think about that. You and I, we we are limited to live between the beginning and the end. But here's a God who, the Bible tells us, in the beginning was. It's one of my son's favorite questions. Well, okay. Something's missing there, Dad. Because who made God? In the beginning, God. When's his beginning? He was there at the beginning. He's before all things, and in him all things consist. He, he was. He told Abraham, I am the beginning. And, and it tells us here, even the end, right? Jesus said that. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. Here's this picture of a sovereign God who's over our lives. Um, this is the way that David was led to say it. This is, By the way, when you grab onto this as a child of God, You no longer become a victim to the times and seasons you walk through because you know what David knew, which is my times are in your hand. Let's just sit on that for a second. You have Solomon's option, which is the earth just rotates, the wind just whirls, and the rivers just run, and you're born and you die, and you cry and you laugh. Or could it be that over the sun, above even heaven, there's a God who is sovereign over it all and to be in him is to have the security that there's nothing I'm going to go through that he is not unaware of. doesn't mean it won't get hard. It doesn't mean that it won't grieve his heart. My times are in your hand. Did you know that you need to know that Did you know that you need to be in that place of being in God's hand more than you need to be in good times? That's the best right there. It doesn't get better than that. And here's why. It tells us in verse 11, because this God who is sovereign, he is making, notice this in verse 11, everything beautiful in its time. The hard part there is it doesn't say in our time, right? He makes everything beautiful whenever we want him to. I wish it said that. It says God has this sovereign rule over all, and he's working everything together towards something beautiful. Even if you don't see it right now, the way Romans 8 tells us, we all know this scripture, that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So, So this is great security and great hope. That God is sovereign over all, and the reason why this is good news is because this sovereign God is good. Like, it's one thing for, for us to know that someone is in supreme power. The big question that follows is, what are they like? You know what I mean? It's like, oh, they have all power. That might not be good news for me if they don't like my kind of people. If not into like, they're not into the sinner type, you know what I'm saying? Anybody else part of the sinner type like me? Like, it's good that God's powerful, but what is he, what's he like? And scriptures describe to us this great news that this sovereign God is also good. And so there's security knowing that my times are in his hands. There's a security knowing what Daniel tells us. Daniel tells us this in Daniel chapter 2. He says, blessed be the name of God forever in heaven, uh, forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changes the times and the seasons. Well, look, God, oh, but you're good. To know that you're good, there's security in that. To know that in your goodness, whatever I'm going through, you're aware of. And as Romans tells me, in your time, I don't understand it, but you are going to work everything together for the good in the end. And sometimes all we're left to do is just believe that. You know what he tells us about this? I love how human Solomon is. Because you ever sometimes feel like you're too human for Christianity? Like maybe the Christianity that people have given you? You know, the Bible gives us a, a, a relationship with God that is richly who we are. The struggle we're in. Seeking to be those that are filled with the Spirit, that follow the Lord in that way. But look at what he says. At the end of verse 11, he says, No one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. So, you know, if we're honest, for most of us, this isn't a verse that encourages us. It's a verse that frustrates us. Has anybody been frustrated by a scripture like this before? It's like, oh, he's going to work it all for good. You're like, nope, I don't see it. Solomon says we, we don't know how he does it. It's a mystery. That's what he says. It's a mystery. God's sovereignty over everything, it's a mystery. Okay? And, and there's not one of us who are going to be the ones who show up and prove Solomon wrong and go, I figured it out, by the way. I figured out the whole sovereignty, man's responsibility thing. I'm here. How's it going? Solomon was wrong. You can find out the work that God does from beginning to end, thanks to me. Your blessing of a theologian to tell you how all of life and God works. No, just no it's, a, it's a mystery. It's a mystery how God can take the good times and the bad times and package them together in the end for good and for beauty. But I want to say this, that just because something is a mystery doesn't mean that it cannot be a certainty. Just because something is a mystery doesn't mean that it cannot be a certainty. I was flying on a plane yesterday, and if you were to ask me how, I would say I have no idea. I, and some of you are, are in the piloting world, and you could give me the full details. For me, I'm like, there's wings and there's engines flying, okay? The Wright brothers had something to do with it, I know, okay? Um, it's a mystery to me. It's a mystery, but I was pretty certain that I was flying, pretty certain. (laughs) I was certainly flying, okay? I certainly am in Florida now and not Maine, okay? And the same is true with God. Though it may be a mystery for how he's going to take the mess that you're going through and use it for good, there can still be that certainty, amen? So God, amen? We're getting there. Um, God is sovereign, we said it this way, over all time. That's what we can trust us with. That's where Solomon first takes us. I love this quote by David Kidner to kind of speak to the mystery. He says this, We are all, in our trials, we are all like the desperately nearsighted, inching our way along some great tapestry or fresco in the attempt to take it in. We see enough to recognize something of its quality, but the grand design escapes us, for we can never stand back far enough to view it as its creator does, whole and entire from beginning to end. We lack the sight, but there's security in knowing that God sees all, and he is sovereign over all. The second thing he shows us, these will be quicker here towards the end, is that God is sovereign for all of time. So the first reality that we can be certain of when it comes to God's certainty is that he is sovereign over it all, and the best news about that is that he is good, and if we are in him, if we love him and are called according to his purposes, we are in Christ, we have this great security that nothing is going to work for my misery, in the end. But all things are going to work for beauty, for the good. But then he says this. He says in verse 14, let's skip down there. He says, I know that whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it that men should fear before him. That which is has already been and that and what is to be has already been and God requires account of what is past. Um, This is incredible news for us to know this about God. Thanks, Solomon, for this certainty. Not only can you know that God is the one who is sovereign over the different times and seasons you walk through in life, as much of an interruption as they are to you and me, they're not an interruption to God. He's good. He is sovereign. We could trust him. The best news about this is that he's always going to be sovereign. There's a permanence to his sovereignty. He is sovereign for all of time for all of time. Uh, The idea here is that there will never be a moment in time when God is not sovereign. He doesn't ever cease to be sovereign. There's not like a sovereignty meter that God has dependent on how tragic and difficult your life is. Like, uh, oh no, it's exceeded God's sovereignty there. He says it this way, whatever God does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken away from it. It's permanent. He's permanently good. He's permanently sovereign. It speaks of this sort of unstoppable nature and force to God's work. Um, we get glimpse of this all throughout the Bible that uh, whatever it is that God is doing ultimately for our good and for his glory, it has a everlasting nature to it. The kingdom of Jesus is an everlasting kingdom. What God is building right now on earth will outlast and everlast every generation and every earthly kingdom. This is how scripture describes it in Psalm 145. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion, your sovereignty endures through all generations, despite whose president, God is still sovereign. This is hard to believe. Remember, uh, when this was written, these truths in the New Testament about governments, oppressive governments, they had more than faulty. Democratic Republic elected officials. uh, They had tyrants. They had murderers. And for the church in that day who were losing their family to the regime of Nero to go, God, you're still king. was a much harder pill to swallow than we have to in our day and age. And we could sit here and nod at it all day long, but how many of us don't live that way? How, How many of us freak out with this mindset that God's sovereignty is dependent upon who's in office. No, that's not how this works. God is only always sovereign. He's only always king. Despite what you go through, he raises up kings, he brings them down. In the end, there's going to be one king and one everlasting kingdom, and that's Jesus. That's what's happening. That's what we're headed towards. This everlasting, nothing can take away from it, nothing can add to it. Now, uh, the reality of this, what it leads us to do, it tells us in verse 14, the reason why God does his work in this way to be established forever is, notice what it says at the end of verse 14, it's so that men should fear before him. So the question today is, do we ultimately fear God? Are we ultimately in awe and reverence of God, a God whose work is going to last forever? Jesus said that I'm going to build my church, for example. He said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Despite how far hell has pushed into this earth, the force of my kingdom, which is my church, is going to move those gates back. We're going to bring heaven into earth, into eternity. And in the end, we know the end of the story. You just got to read the back of the book. I mean, Jesus wins, which is the best part about being a follower of Jesus. Like we get to operate in real time knowing what's going to happen, right? There's no like cliffhanger. Oh my gosh, we'll see like no we sang it didn't we we sing hallelujah because the lamb is overcome jesus is going to endure and and so what does that lead us to do that should cause us to go lord forgive me for building my kingdom temporary sandcastle kingdom that's just going to be flattened along with every other one this should cause us to say god May I put all of my life and may I put all of my efforts towards building what is eternal. This calls for the direction of our lives and this, this affects every facet of our lives, how we do our relationships, how we manage our finances, how we go about our vocations, how we go about our, 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 our free time. I mean, everything is affected by this reality of God's sovereignty. We say, God, you are eternal. We want to build towards what is eternal knowing that in the end, it's your kingdom that will last forever. I want to build my life according to your purposes. And then lastly, we close with this idea that God is sovereign with all time. So he's sovereign over all time. He's sovereign for all time. It's going to last forever. Um, And this is just a good little reminder here at the end that God is sovereign with all time, meaning he's he's pretty good with time. He's good at it, okay? It says in verse 16, Solomon observes something under the sun. What does he notice? He notices in the place of judgment— wickedness was there. And the place of righteousness, iniquity was there. This is what Solomon observes. Now, this is the worst kind of injustice, isn't it? The worst kind of wickedness is uh, is when it's occupying the seat of righteousness. Does that make sense? So what is Solomon talking about? here? He's talking about those who are in a seat and in a position in life to administer justice, but they are unjust themselves. And so what should be used As a vessel of justice has been corrupted and is now wicked. Okay, imagine that, right? Imagine a broken justice system, okay? Imagine uh, wicked leaders in places of righteousness. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? It's not. It's not. We see it every day in so many different kinds of scenarios. And what's hard with this is that the people who are righteous in those righteous positions, they get lumped in with the wicked. And so with law enforcement, we tend to throw out the baby with the bathwater because of some bad eggs. You get what I'm getting at here, though. There's this, there's this real, dark, difficult injustice that Solomon looks at and he goes, man, that's just wrong. It is wrong when people are abusing their power to oppress others for their own good. That's wrong. That's wicked. And th- to the secularist, first of all, if there's no God, who says it's wicked? Who says? Moral relativism, relativism, right? I mean, who, you know, whatever. And also, let's say it is wrong. What does it matter in the end? Solomon goes, well, it does matter in the end. He tells us this, because God shall, verse 17, judge the righteous and the wicked. God's going to judge the righteous and the wicked. You see, you know, inspired here by the Spirit, Solomon is pointing to a day, the Bible talks all about this day, this final day of judgment that is truly approaching because God is good, by the way. Because he's good. And so he will punish wicked evildoers. Because he's good. You know, not because he's not. God, why would you? No, because he's just and because he's Holy. Solomon goes, there's a day coming. Now, notice what he says about it, though. There is a time for every purpose. Like, I imagine him looking around going, well, it's been going on for some time now, God, the whole wickedness and the place of righteousness thing. You know, any any day now, <laughs> you know, there's a time coming. You know, Four, three to 4,000 years later, here we are. There's a time coming. God is gonna judge the wicked. And uh, what Solomon leads us to be affirmed of here is the fact that, listen, Despite the delay, God is, is good with time. Don't worry. Don't worry. He created time. He knows how to use it pretty well. He's never been early. He's never been late. He's always right. He's a, he's a pretty punctual person. He's sovereign with his time. Uh, and it's interesting because uh, Peter talks about this in the New Testament. He says, um, oh, wrong scripture right here. It says this uh, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise of his coming. As some count slackness, people are like, "Oh, yeah, the Christian God is slacking. I thought He was going to return. I thought I thought Jesus was going to come back and establish His kingdom." And he goes, "No, that's not God. Don't confuse that. That's not God's slackness. That's His long suffering. He's long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." So, so here's Peter talking about the same thing Solomon is—the issue of time. Going, God, when, when are you going to come back? At the right time, God would say. And I'm patient. I, I, haven't, I haven't delayed because I'm, I've forgotten to return. Like, didn't I have something to do? Oh, yeah, return to earth? Yeah. No, I've delayed because, again, of my character, because I'm good. And the longer I delay, there are people even right now at Soulless Church under the sound of the preaching of the gospel, and I'm waiting for them to come to me. I'm waiting for them to return to me. Okay, now listen for a second. Because, according to Scripture, the wicked evildoer, who is a just and righteous target of God's holy judgment, is not them and they. It's us and we. Now, nobody nobody likes to admit that. Nobody really does. Like Christians will say things like, you know, I'm just I'm imperfect, (laughs) you know, I'm a sinner. But like, when's the last time we were like, I'm a wicked evildoer. Well, no, I'm not that because I'm better than them. And the scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have separated themselves. All have partaken in this wickedness. All have rebelled against God. And it's the grace of God that, listen, that at just the right time, God sent his son Jesus. And Jesus, who was the the only man to to be righteous and live a righteous life, the only one, he went to a cross. And on that cross, he traded places with you and I so that we who were targets of God's wrath, we now get to become recipients of his grace and love because Jesus took that wrath on the cross. He became sin on our behalf so that we can become the righteousness of God in him. That's why the Bible says this is good news. Like, oh, that's great news. My heart rejoices in that. That Jesus would love me so much to take on what I deserve and to give me what he earned. It's the gospel. It's the good news of what God has done through Christ. And, and so if you're ever struggling in your life, okay, uh, with God's timing, you ever struggle with God's timing? Like, Lord, if I, you know, no offense, but if I was God, um, I would have done this by now. You could be reminded that it was at just the right time that when you and I were powerless that Christ died for the ungodly. Look back to the cross and go, you know what you're doing. At just the right time, you sent your son. I can trust that you are sovereign over everything I'm going through. I can trust that your sovereignty is forever. And I can trust that your sovereignty is right now, that you know what you're doing You're good with time. You're not late. You're not delayed. You have a greater purpose. And I can trust that certainty in God's sovereignty. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.